I beat her and I beat her badly, and I haven't even started on her. Yeah. That's true. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in L.A. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM KSO in Cozy Cottage Grove. Out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI. In Lancaster, 88.5 FM KAKU in Hawaii, the voice of Maui. And up in Minneapolis, St. Paul, where they're getting ready for Super Tuesday on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, and of course, five days a week on Radio Sputnik. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another action-packed, thrilling adventure that we call The Bradcast. By the way, my thanks, speaking of The Bradcast and our thrilling adventures, uh, my thanks to Nicole Sandler of RadioOrNot.com for filling in for me on the last thrilling episode, and to progressive radio legend, Randy Rhodes for joining her. Very cool. Great to hear Randy back on the airwaves once again. So check out Nicole and Randy's broadcast at bradblog.com if you missed it. And if you get the chance, uh, always good to hear from Randy. So uh, thank you uh, both, Nicole and Randy. Randy, greatly appreciated. Um, so uh, this happened over the weekend as Bill Clinton was out stumping for Hillary as a Marine stood and, and asked a long question to, to the former president about fixing the Veterans Administration before this guy then segued into a comment about Benghazi and then the entire thing swirled into a mess. It went on and on and on. It resulted in the guy being escorted out of the event eventually because he wouldn't stop talking long enough to let President Clinton even respond. And then there was other protesting as well. Here's a very shortened version because it, like I say, went on and on. Here's a very shortened version of just some of the mess uh, that took place at this event for Hillary Clinton uh, where she wasn't there. But Bill Clinton was there and responding to uh, folks in the crowd. And I have met with many of these Gold Star parents and families, so I've seen them. I've what do you think should be done with the I've seen them mourn. And the thing is that we had four lives in Benghazi that were killed, and your wife tried to cover it up. Oh, 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 go ahead. I went over those four lives. Okay, now can I answer? All of them exactly the same. Well, I mean, I heard, can I answer? I heard the speech. They heard the speech. You listen to me. Of the, of the Benghazi. Do I have a right to answer? I'm not your commander-in-chief anymore, but if I were, I'd tell you to be more polite and say I wouldn't listen! I would just raise my foot! If you'll shut up and listen to my answer, I'll answer it. Let's notice he's like my brother! 
was escorted out. Right. His mind has been poisoned by lies, and he won't listen. Hillary lied over four coffins. Oh, there's well, another one. I'm not going to shut up. It's my first. Yeah. Yeah. Why are you afraid to listen to my Yes, answer. I am. Why are you afraid? No, I'm not afraid, because I know you're going to lie. Yes, she did. She lied to our yeah, you need to watch the movie. Yeah, so that uh, that exchange went on and on and on over the weekend. It was just an absolute mess, but get used to it, to be frank. Uh, that's what uh, is likely to happen a lot, I suspect, between now and November, if Hillary Clinton wins the, uh, wins the nomination. We'll be uh, talking about that with Nathan J. Robinson shortly, the, specifically the issue of electability and the concern. The concern, at least to me, is not so much re- what Republicans will do in going after Bernie Sanders as a quote unquote democratic socialist, uh, but what uh, the mess that Hillary Clinton is likely to face with all of the questions, whether they are, uh, you know, accurate or complete and utter nonsense like the Benghazi stuff. So what what we're going to see from the uh, general election campaign, if Hillary is the nominate nominee and specifically what Donald Trump. And this is an issue that has not been really talked about at all. What Donald Trump will be able to do to Hillary to capitalize on some of those things, again, whether they are true or not. And what he will not be able to do against Bernie Sanders at the same time in a general election campaign. Anyway, we'll be speaking with uh, Nathan J. Robinson, the editor of Current Affairs magazine, uh, in a bit. He will be here to explain shortly. In the meantime, over the weekend, oh, and I should say hi, Desi Doyen. I didn't say hi to you. Hi, Desi. Hi. How are you? I'm all right. Thanks. Swell. Glad to hear it. (laughs) Our producer, Desi Doyen. Okay. Uh, in the meantime, uh, over the weekend, as you all know by now, Hillary Clinton absolutely trounced, trounced Bernie Sanders in the South Carolina primary. Uh, at least she did so according to the 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting machine results that were reported by the state of South Carolina, where they hate their voters so much that they force them to vote, at least on Election Day, on voting machines for which there is pretty much no way to know if the results were right or wrong. By the way, absentee paper ballot voting in South Carolina was reportedly way up. That's uh, good news. I'm not a fan of absentee voting, but if your only choice is to vote on one of these unverifiable touchscreens on Election Day, then yeah, paper voting is a great idea. And more and more people seem to be understanding that in the state of South Carolina, where they're still using these horrible, flawed, easily manipulated voting machines. Now, where there is, you know, no going back, you can't recount ballots. Uh, if you have questions about it, uh, there is no, uh, essentially, no evidence to tell you otherwise, other than the results that we have been told on election day. Uh, there are no ballots. Other than those absentee ballots. In any event, uh, the machines, uh, you know, in the past have gotten it wrong. And, uh, you know, pretty much all of the evidence to, to suggest otherwise 
at least in South Carolina, doesn't exist, as I've long reported and as I've been warning on this program and on Bradblog. As a matter of fact, our friend Ernie Canning, a longtime legal contributor at Bradblog, he is currently uh, largely on a leave of absence from Bradblog.com as he serves as the advisor, as an, an advisor for uh, the Vets for Bernie group. He quoted from some of our coverage of these machines in South Carolina, some of our coverage of the infamous 2010 contest for the nomination to the U.S. Senate that took place in South Carolina for the Democrats back in 2010, in which a completely unknown guy by the name of Alvin Green was declared the winner for the, for the U.S. Senate nomination over a well-known, well-liked, long-serving politician and state judge by the name of Vic Rawl. Canning uh, quotes our coverage at L.A. Progressive today. He, he quotes some of this, uh, some of our coverage from 2010. He says uh, Green was unemployed, virtually unknown. He had no campaign website, no volunteers, no campaign literature. He didn't even own a computer or a phone. His opponent, the respected circuit court judge and former state uh, legislator Vic, Vic Rawl, had raised hundreds of thousands of campaign dollars, appeared at 80 campaign events, had hundreds of volunteers. And yet, somehow, this guy, Alvin Green, ended up winning. Canning goes on to quote us from 2010, saying, The numbers were beyond absurd. Lancaster County paper ballots went to Rawl 84% to 16%. The unverifiable touchscreens in the same county, however, said that Rawl lost... By 17 points. Green received more votes than were cast in 25 Spartanburg County precincts. The votes of 50 other precincts were missing from the uh, from the final count. Statewide, the virtually unknown Greens somehow managed to capture 60 percent of the vote, according to the ESNS Ivotronic touchscreen machines used in the state of South Carolina. Well, Rawl went on to challenge those results. He was denied access to the voting machine cartridges, so he could not present a case uh, based on what the machines, you know, if the machines might have been manipulated and so forth. Two computer scientists testified at his challenge to those results, saying that the system malfunction provided, uh, and the only explanation was a system malfunction. That's the only reasonable explanation that they could find. Voters had said that they saw their votes flipped to green at the time on the machines. Campaign workers saw poll workers swapping out memory cartridges to the machines during the elections, during the election. But Rawls challenge was ignored by most of the mainstream media, and it was rejected by the Democratic Party's executive board, largely for what I reported at the time were uh, political reasons by insider sources. So that's what happened uh, in the past on these machines, did that happen over the weekend in South Carolina? There's absolutely no no way to know. The results, as reported, show Hillary trouncing Bernie, as I said, and it's very likely that she did, no matter what, trounce him. The pre-election polls showed her, on average, winning by a uh, little more than 27 points. And then she went on to win by almost twice that, almost 50 points, 74 to 26 uh, percent over Bernie Sanders. So it was a thumping no matter what. No question about it. You know, is it as high as the reported results say? We can never know. And I speak to that because I've been getting a lot of e email from people asking about that over the weekend. Did they goose her results? We don't know. 
There is no way to know. And that's the problem with these machines, the problem that I've been trying to point out forever. So those of you out there, you Sanders supporters who think somehow they, you know, they, they, they put the thumb on the scale for Hillary Clinton in South Carolina in the voting results over the weekend. No evidence that they did. But right now, unfortunately, no evidence that they did not. Even if they did, however, it was likely that she was going to win, at least from all of these independent polls that took place in the lead up to uh, to South Carolina, that she was going to win, whether it would be by almost 50 points or not. That's another matter. But we don't know. And this is why I talk about this stuff all year long, not on the day of the election, not the day after the election when it's too damn late to do anything about it, but because I want you to understand what we're dealing with with these electoral systems and how bad they are and the importance of having a paper ballot first and then, frankly, hand counting that paper ballot, you know, with human beings and stuff instead of computers, which is what happens around most of the country. And it will happen again on Super Tuesday in a whole bunch of counties, in a whole bunch of uh, states, I should say. And in fact, a number of those states also use those 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen systems still to their eternal shame. Nonetheless, speaking of uh, your thumb on the on the scale. Uh, the corporate media began uh, ringing Bernie's death toll with those big numbers coming out of South Carolina, suggesting that he was finished. And by the way, that could be true. We'll see how he does on Super Tuesday, where Clinton leads in a lot of the states, but where Sanders has a few of them in his column as well. And uh, moreover, he has vowed to keep fighting far beyond Super Tuesday with a number of uh, Midwestern states coming up the following week after Super Tuesday. Uh, where where uh, some of those states where Sanders is doing better. And as far as June, when the race shows up uh, for you and I here, Desi Doyen, where we can vote actually in California, we, we may, we may, for the first time since, what, 2008, have some kind of a say in who is actually the nominee out here in California. That would be great, yeah. uh, but yeah. we didn't even get a chance really yeah. out in 2008. It was pretty much already decided, mm -hmm. not completely, but you know, we didn't get that much opportunity. So I don't know if we'll get it out well, here. We'll, this we'll is, I'm, I'm glad knows? to see that it's uh, it's still continuing this far. Well, we'll see if it continues this far because right now the you know the corporate media is kind of announcing it all but over. Uh, but a few points that were overlooked by much of the corporate media over the weekend and that can be gleaned from the exit polls, among other things, this is something that University of New Hampshire's Seth Abr uh, Abramson explained at Huffington Post. In these exit polls, there is some encouraging news for Bernie Sanders. Uh, he won independence in South Carolina by seven points. People who are not Republicans or Democrats. And of course, that is going to come into play in the general election. He won voters under 30 by eight points. He won first time primary voters, people who you know are showing up to vote for the very first time. He won there by 26 points. White men, he won by 12 points. Uh, and while losing, as uh, Abramson notes, by a staggering 47.5 percent, according to the reported results, uh, uh, Sanders managed to lose the question of honesty and trustworthiness by just 12 points. I'm sorry, just by just two points, by just two points in that case. I was looking deeper into some of these uh, exit results, exit poll, exit poll results. Um, 
one of the um, uh, remarkable things they were um, they asked, you know, is Bernie Sanders honest and trustworthy? Is Hillary Clinton honest and trustworthy? And in pretty much actually, I think all of the categories, Bernie Sanders, not surprisingly, because we've seen these numbers before, was uh, well regarded as far as honest and trustworthy, more so, far more so than Hillary Clinton, who was uh, a lot of either weren't sure or they just out and out said no about her. She did OK, but not nearly as well as Bernie Sanders. Looking at the uh, age 18 to 29 category, do you feel Bernie Sanders is honest and trustworthy? The respondents in the uh, this is from the YouGov CBS News uh, exit polls found uh, between 18 and 29 year olds. 100% said yes to Bernie Sanders as being honest and trustworthy, whereas just barely over 40% said yes to uh, Hillary Clinton being honest and trustworthy. Is that a concern in a general election where you're going to need young voters, where you're going to need, uh, you know, uh, independent voters as well? Well, there's something to consider. And it's something that the uh, corporate media has not been paying a lot of attention to. On the other hand, it should be noted that Bernie Sanders lost hugely, hugely, I should say, amongst uh, African-American voters, which will be an important element, uh, of course, this November. It was a very important element of the uh, Obama coalition in 2008 and 2012. But in 2012, African-Americans made up just 13 percent of the electorate, whereas in South Carolina on Saturday, they accounted for 61% of the electorate. So that's a huge difference in what you saw in South Carolina on uh, over the weekend that I think was not has not been adequately accounted for in the reporting I've seen on the uh, South Carolina primary since then. And here's a big point. After Saturday, just 4% of all of the delegates, of all of the Democratic delegates, the pledged delegates, the ones that people are actually voting for right now in these caucuses and in these primaries, just 4% of the delegates have been decided. So we still have 96% of the primary season ahead of us. So when you hear that, uh, when you you know, when you hear him uh, ringing the death toll for Bernie Sanders, keep that in mind. Also, keep this in mind. This is kind of driving me crazy. Uh, the New York Times is doing this. Washington Post is doing this. CNN is doing this. Um, so, OK, there are 200, uh, 2,383 total delegates needed to win at the convention. Uh, to to clinch the nomination. Well, before South Carolina, Hillary had 52. 52 out of 2,383. Bernie had 51. So essentially, they were tied. This was after, uh, before South Carolina and after Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. They were essentially tied at about 51 delegates each, voted on delegates. In the meantime, if you look at the Washington Post results up at the top, it says uh, uh, Clinton, 544 delegates to Sanders, 85. That was after South Carolina. Beforehand, it said, as does the New York Times, uh, before South Carolina, Clinton leads the delegate race, 502 to 70. She's killing him. She's drowning him. 
Well, no, she's not. It's actually tied before South Carolina. After South Carolina, she's uh, taken a bit of a lead. She's got 91 pledged delegates, you know, the delegates that people actually voted for, versus 65 to Bernie Sanders, 91 to 65. Um, but they're counting these super delegates into these counts. So Washington Post, you know, now shows Clinton just destroying Sanders, 544 delegates to Sanders, 85. There's no way he could possibly catch up. But that includes the superdelegates, and they are not actually pledged to anyone. So I'm not even sure why the media is bothering to report on this, uh, these superdelegates, at least not in the way they are, putting them at the, at the top line here, because it gives you a completely skewed... Look, if they go into the, uh, uh, into the convention this summer and Bernie Sanders has more pledged delegates that he won via voters than Hillary Clinton... Are you telling me that these superdelegates, these insiders, these these uh, party bigwigs, elected officials and, you know, party insiders, people who gave money to the party and so forth, that they're going to vote for Hillary, who received fewer votes? I, I just don't see it happening. It would be unbelievably undemocratic, small d undemocratic. So I'm not sure why the mainstream uh, corporate media is putting their thumb on the scale by reporting these superdelegate numbers as they are. Um, they didn't do that back in 2008, as FAIR points out, Fairness and uh, Accuracy in Reporting. Jim Nor Norikas over there reports that. But they're doing it this year. And it sure is making it look like they are trouncing, uh, that she is trouncing Bernie Sanders with these numbers. <sighs> anyway, um, that's the corporate media. So I'm just trying to clear this up. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to put my thumb on the scale either way for or against Bernie or Hillary in this case. I'm just trying to help you, the electorate, be a more informed electorate so you can make a better decision and you are not misguided by these uh, misleading numbers that the corporate media is, is putting out there. All right. In the meantime, speaking of misleading, the electability argument is uh, still being used to suggest that Hillary, Hillary is more electable for some reason uh, than is Bernie Sanders, even though the few head-to-head -head polls that we have show Bernie Sanders doing better against Donald Trump and the other Republican uh, candidates, as if anyone else is going to win the nomination on the Republican side. But they show Bernie Sanders doing better than Hillary Clinton in those head-to-head matchups. But is that calculation correct either? We'll see. Uh, Sanders is, you know, doing better than Hillary in those very few polls. Uh, but Hillary Clinton is winning there. She's still winning against uh, Donald Trump. But that's only because, uh, well, the right has not really started in with their attacks, uh, their attacks either against Bernie and socialism. He's a socialist or they, their attacks that you know are coming against Hillary Clinton, like those Benghazi attacks, which have no substance to them. But, well, uh, you're going to hear them endlessly. The email servers, again, substance or not, you're going to hear them over and over again. But perhaps even a bigger consideration can be noted in this comment by Donald Trump from the GOP debate uh, last Thursday night in Houston. Here's what uh, here's what Hillary. Uh, I'm sorry, what Donald Trump said about Hillary Clinton. 
Hillary Clinton, take a look at USA Today, take a look at the Q poll. I beat her and I beat her badly. And I will, and I haven't even started on her. I only had one little interchange. Mm -hmm. I only had one little interchange. And that was four weeks ago when she said I was sexist. And believe me, they had a rough weekend that weekend between Bill and Hillary. They had a rough weekend. Yeah, and he hasn't even started on her yet. That's the key line from that. We will talk about that next on the broadcast with my guest, Nathan J. Robinson, who makes, frankly, one of the best arguments concerning Sanders's electability versus Hillary's in a general election. The, one of the best arguments I've seen to date. Stay tuned for that. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. If you change your mind, take a chance. I'm the first in line. On the arms feel free. Take a chance on me. If you need me, let me know. Gonna be around. If you got no place to go, when you're feeling down. If you're all alone. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Yeah, that that could be. I have to talk to some folks uh, over at the Sanders campaign, th- see if they thought about using that as a theme song. Uh, take a chance on me. David Korn, writing last week at uh, Mother Jones, uh, noted this was in the uh, in the aftermath of Donald Trump's huge win at the Nevada caucuses. Uh, he writes that uh, after Donald Trump's third win in a row last week in Nevada, Pundits and political observers are beginning to accept a stark reality. This guy may become the Republican Party standard bearer in the 2016 presidential election. To which I would add, what took him so long? Tweeters, scribes and analysts throughout the political media world began wondering if the GOP elite could do anything to stop Trump from seizing control of the Republican Party. Whether possible or not to de-Trumpify the GOP at this point, Republican insiders, poobahs, and bigwigs only have themselves to blame for Franken-Trump. Well, yeah, that's right. That's actually what we have been telling you from day one, from the day that Trump actually got into this uh, race, that he had broken the GOP, GOP primary and that, uh, frankly, the Republican Party had only itself to blame. Nice to see other people starting to notice, too. Uh, Corn goes on to say, in recent years, 
Uh, the Republicans have fomented, fostered, accepted and exploited the climate of hate in which Trump's candidacy candidacy has taken root for the fat cat donors, special interest lobbyists and elected officials who usually run the Republican show. Trump is an invasive species, but he has grown large and strong in the manure that they have spread across the political landscape. Yep, sounds about right. At the same time, over at Salon, uh, Sophia Tezfe noted last week that uh, Bernie Sanders has been leading nationally all month, at least according to Reuters polling. New national polling from Reuters showing Sanders leading Hillary Clinton by six points among Democrats, his largest lead of the primary so far. According to the poll of 998 voters from across the country over five days last Tuesday, Sanders has the support of 41.7 percent of Democrats compared to Clinton's 35.5 percent. He's beating her 41.35 in that poll. Another poll, a Reuters Ipsos, Ipsos poll, conducted earlier in February, immediately following the Iowa caucus, found that Sanders had jumped from 30% support at the beginning of the year to 43% support. 43% support. That's just about what Donald Trump got in Nevada with his huge victory there. Uh, Anyway, uh, Sanders has 43% support nationally in that that poll, all but vanquishing Clinton's commanding lead. Reuters also features a daily tracking feature illustrating that Sanders has led Clinton nationally for a majority of the days in February. And Salon goes on to note it isn't just Reuters showing Sanders with a national edge over Clinton. A Quinnipiac national poll released in late February showed Sanders two points ahead of Clinton, as did a Fox News poll released a few days later. In fact, according to Real Clear Politics polling averages, Sanders is gaining ground on Clinton at roughly the same pace that Barack Obama did in 2008 as the then Illinois senator was leading Clinton nationally by only three points between February 22 and February 24 of 2008. So anyone who, uh, for some reason at this point, is counting Bernie Sanders out has not been paying attention to history, it seems. Bernie's rise has been happening at the same time as Trump's rise, Trump's explosive rise, all of which begs the question about what uh, Democrats and Republicans should do about all of this. On the Democratic front, over at uh, Current Affairs magazine, Nathan J. Robinson wrote last week, unless the Democrats run Sanders, a Trump nomination means a Trump presidency. Really? Uh, He writes, uh, with Donald Trump looking increasingly likely to be the uh, Republican nominee for president, it's long past time for Democrats to start working on a pragmatic strategy to defeat him. Months of complacent, wishful insistences that Trump will disappear have proven false. And with a a firm commanding lead in polls and several primary victories, predictions are increasingly favoring Trump to win the nomination. If Democrats honestly believe, as they say they do, that Trump poses a serious threat to the well-being of the country and the lives of minority citizens, that means doing everything possible to keep him out of office. To do that... Robinson argues, will require them to very quickly unite around a single goal, albeit a counterintuitive one, 
they must make absolutely sure that Bernie Sanders is the Democratic nominee for president. Really? Yeah, that's the case that uh, Nathan Robinson makes in current affairs, and it is a lengthy, but I must say, compelling and quite persuasive piece in truth. Joining us now to talk about that and to explain what the hell he must be thinking is Nathan J. Robinson. He's a social policy Ph.D. student at Harvard University, as well as an attorney, a sociologist, a uh, children's book author and the editor of Current Affairs magazine. Nathan J. Robinson, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Good to be with you. Uh, great to have you here, and and thanks for this piece. I have been reading uh, a lot of arguments for uh, Bernie Sanders, for and against, uh, but I find this, frankly, to be the most compelling and, and persuasive one that I've read. Before we get into the to the meat of this thing, uh, I, I don't support any particular candidate personally or on the show here, Bradcast or Bradblog.com. Candidates have plenty supporters out there, but the voters don't. So I support them and their right to vote to make sure they can vote who they want to vote for. And at the same time, I believe that they are better off if I can help inform those voters with facts so they can make better decisions. But for the sake of trans, that's me. But for the sake of transparency, are you, Nathan, working in some fashion for the Sanders campaign or, or any of his supporting groups, etc.? I have not done any work for the Sanders campaign. Uh, however, after reading my case, I feel like I might have to sign up just because. Uh, <laughs> but I haven't. I have. I have set this election out because I feel like a lot of voters feel that most of the options, including Sanders, who I don't care for very much at all. Uh, most of the options are very unappealing, and that the only reason that I would uh, uh, support him is purely out of uh, out of lesser evilism, as the philosophy is put. Oh, fair, fair enough. Okay, so you've convinced yourself with your own article. <laughs> it sounds like. All right. Well, well we're writing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, with all of that in mind, uh, it, as I say, it's a very compelling argument. I want to get into the. Uh, uh, to the facts here, uh, electability. You you lead off with electability. In fact, the entire thing is about electability, yeah, no, and that's exactly. that's been the key question in the Bernie Hillary race. I know for a lot of people, and uh, most of the head-to-head polls, admittedly not a huge number of them, but most of those polls measuring general election matchups show Hillary Clinton actually doing very, very well uh, right now, at least, against Donald Trump. But those same polls in almost every case show Sanders doing better, in some cases uh, yeah. twice as well against Hillary. Now, Sanders supporters cite those polls all the time, but Hillary yeah. supporters say, well, yeah, that's only because, uh, you know, so much has come out about me. I've been attacked for years. Yeah. They haven't even started in the case against Bernie Sanders uh, when, and the, you know, the socialist and everything else are going to uh, start flinging at him. Uh, what, what do you say to that? So frankly, I think that's right. I think that I think the Hillary supporters are right. I don't um, I don't put too much faith in early polling. Um, as I as I say, you know, if you put faith in early polling, you wouldn't have foreseen the rise of Sanders because he was polling at ten percent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the problem with polls is that they are unable to foresee events that will occur in the future that will change the way people think. Right? There's a campaign that's happening, and the campaign changes people's minds. Things that happen mm -hmm. in the campaign change people's opinions, make people more favorable to one candidate, less favorable to another. So what I think is more valuable uh, in thinking about is precisely what the Hillary supporters are saying. You know, 
yes, these are the polls, but what do we think is going to actually happen that might change those polls? And what, how do we think things are going to play out mm-hmm. um, in the general election? And, and what they're saying, what the Hillary folks are saying, is that, yeah, you do have to keep that in mind, because right now... Uh, Bernie Sanders is uh, getting pretty much a free ride yeah. when they start throwing everything they have right. at him. Uh, so it will it will be a disaster. They they argue. Yeah. No, that's true. But uh, here's what I think. I think they're right about the question and wrong about the answer because they're right that this is the way we need to be thinking about things. But they're wrong because they also over they they overstate the amount to which Hillary has already withstood the attacks. This is what they say. Mm-hmm. You know, she's already withstood the attacks. He hasn't. So what I ask people to think about is what the dynamics of a Clinton-Trump election would look like Mm -hmm. versus what the dynamics of a Sanders-Trump election would look like. What we think these attacks are going to look like in each case and how we think they might affect voters' perception. Mm -hmm. So even though Clinton's right that she's been in politics a long time, people have attacked her a long time, she's never gone through a general election or general presidential election. Um, And it's also true, and I, I make this, I say this is the key point, is right. that her opponent is Donald Trump. And that, that is something that, that the Democrats need to start thinking when they ask all these questions about electability and what's going to happen and who's going to be attacked and how. They need to be thinking in terms of the fact that Donald Trump is likely to be the Republican nominee. Now, Donald Trump, Hillary has never come under um, the full force of Donald Trump's aggressive campaigning style. And so we should think about what that will look like versus what it would look like if Bernie Sanders came under the full force of Donald Trump's aggressive campaigning style. Uh, yeah, and uh, and you spell out you even uh, you even have a monologue here, an imaginary monologue of, and, and maybe we'll read it in a second because I think it's dead on. I think it's right on the money. I would not be surprised if Trump actually pulled these words from your piece, Nathan Robinson, and and used them as is uh, against <laughs> against Hillary. Yeah, someone asked me if I was writing speeches for him. Uh, yeah. Well, you, uh, well, you know what? Let me, let me go ahead and read this because it's really on the money. I could imagine, and I don't do a very good Trump imitation, but I, I'll, let me do my best because I want to let everyone understand the case. So you, you imagine a case where uh, Trump would use these sorts of attacks against her, whether they are truthful or not, whether they have any substance or not. He, unlike another Republican candidate, would have no problem going on and on and on with any of these attacks. Okay, so here, here, here's what you write up uh, for for him. Your your speech writing for Donald Trump. She lies so much. Everything she says is a lie. I've never seen someone who lies so much in my life. Let me tell you three lies she's told. She made up a story about how she was ducking sniper fire. There was no sniper fire. She made it up. How do you forget a thing like that? She uh, said she was named after Sir Edmund Hillary, the guy who climbed Mount Everest. He hadn't even climbed it when she was born. Total lie. She lied about the emails, of course, as we all know, and is probably going to be indicted. You know, she said there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. It That was a lie. Thousands of American soldiers are dead because of her. Not only does she lie, her lies kill people. That's four lies. I said I'd give you three. You can't even count them. You, you want to go on PolitiFact? You see how many lies she has? It takes you an hour to read all of them. In fact... They ask her, she doesn't even say she hasn't lied. They ask her straight up. She says she usually, usually tries to tell the truth. Oh, she tries. Come on. This is a person. Every single word out of her mouth is a lie. Nobody trusts her. Check the polls. Nobody trusts her. Huge liar. Well, 
that's kind of yeah. yeah i could i could see that and then i think most people can yeah yeah so what happens next and this is sort of the crux of your case the way each of these candidates uh, sanders and trump the difference in the way they would have to respond to trump so what ends up happening how does hillary respond to that inevitable attack from candidate donald trump well as i said i don't think there really is a way to respond because some of it's true some of it isn't but the thing is that she has lied those things were false and she did say them so the problem is that when you try and defend against those things he'll just point out that you're lying more and then you'll just sink further into the hole and it's also the case that, um, I mean, these things have occurred to Hillary Clinton before, and she's not actually very good at dealing with them. I mean, every sort of experienced campaign insider knows that her campaigns, both in 2008 and this year, have had a marked tendency to not really respond well to changing facts on the ground, whether it's the rise of Obama or the rise of Sanders. And so unexpected attacks from, from in left field, um, she doesn't do very well. She kind of flounders. And really, she says Bernie Sanders has had it, had it easy, but she's had it easy but because Bernie Sanders has said things like, enough with the damn email, right? right, right. He said, I'm not going to attack you on these various things. Well, if you watch Donald Trump's speeches at his rallies, even right now, he says, he says, I can't wait to go after Hillary Clinton. I watched him. He said, he said, he said, we are going, he said, she's gotten a pass on the emails. We're not going to give her a pass. I'm not going to let up. He says that to all of his supporters. Um, and so you can see what's going to happen if you think about and you study what kind of a campaigner Hillary Clinton is, how she responds to these things. I think we can, we can, we can pretty well conclude that it, that kind of exchange will not go well for her because Frankly, he's right about a lot of these things. She did vote for the Iraq War, and he's the only one to condemn it among the Republicans. Mm. Yeah, and and you write, uh, Nathan, that uh, she will attempt to go after him in return. She will, in other words, feed the troll, as you uh, as you describe it. Uh, Sanders, by contrast, will almost certainly believe uh, behave as if Trump isn't even there. What does that mean? How how do you feel? Uh, how, how do you see Sanders responding differently? He's certainly going to get uh, attacks as well yeah. from from Trump. Why is the calculation so, different for Bernie? So the calculation is different first because the issues that Trump will raise with Clinton are personal issues, and she kind of has to respond. When you start alleging scandals, she's going to be starting to put out statements trying to right. explain the scandal. She has to explain away the scandal. She wants to move attention over to the issues, but it's kind of impossible. So she's got to engage with him, and he loves it when you engage with him. That's what feeds him. That's what, you know, because he wins every exchange. That's, that's how he grows strong, is through fighting with people, dragging a campaign down into the gutter. And Hillary Clinton has a tendency to go negative uh, in campaigns. And that works against some people. It doesn't work against Trump at all. People have been throwing things at him the whole campaign. It only makes him stronger. So I ask people to think about what we might think, the, how we might think these same dynamics unfold in the Bernie Sanders race. Okay, well, Bernie Sanders does not really have the personal stuff to go after, right? You know, the, the main attack on him, we know, is going to be that he's a socialist. So right. Trump can repeat that he's a socialist over and over. Bernie Sanders kind of owns that. He's a proud socialist. The right. thing he's a socialist, he doesn't see that as a slur. He just tries to explain that what he means is paid family leave in Norway. Mm -hmm. He just says Norway. <laughs> right. Right. So... Bernie Sanders has, has generally been a pretty positive campaigner, not universally, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, the kind of ads he's run. He's run the Simon Garfunkel ad, you know, the Uplifting America ad. He's mm -hmm. run uh, ads 
you know, with people of all races standing together and all the, what we could be together. And that's kind of the way he talks, too. You know, enough with the emails. We just, I just want to talk to you about, you know, uh, the plight of the middle class. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's really hard for the usual Trump technique, which is dirty, which is personal, which is sleazy. It's really hard to see how he can be as effective against that kind of campaign. So I ask people, you know, think about these things for yourself. Think about the kinds of attacks that would come of Bernie from Trump, that would come of Hillary. You know, what you know about Bernie, what you know about Hillary, and what you know about Trump. Mm-hmm. And, we, I mean, it's all speculation. But I think, you know, based on what we know, we can all sort of foresee how those dynamics would evolve in each case. You you write that uh, Sanders, by contrast, will almost behave as if Trump is not even there. So, do you foresee him not responding to those tax or sort of dismissing them, uh, whatever they are? And and you rightly note there's just not as much ammo to go against Bernie Sanders, although that has not stopped uh, uh, Donald Trump from making stuff up as needed. But you envision uh, Bernie just saying, "Yeah, well, whatever," responding to them and sticking to his issues. Uh, rather this than is how people the make Trump? fun of him. People make fun of Bernie by saying, you know, you ask what you know, you ask Bernie Sanders a question, and the answer is social security. It doesn't matter what the question is. Right. And the answer is we got to say social security. Right. You know, and <laughs> obviously that makes him kind of laughable in this race. And people, you know, and people say he's a single issue candidate, but against Trump, being a single issue candidate actually kind of helps you because it means you're sticking to the issue. It means that whatever Trump, you know, whatever he mouths off, uh-huh. Bernie Sanders does his thing where he raises his hands and he goes, look. Look, I just want to talk to you about the millionaires and billionaires, right? right? And you know, so it doesn't end up into a, a, a sniping. It doesn't end up in a sniping fight between him and uh, and Trump. I mean, one of the other things I said that you can see how Trump talks about Hillary at his, at his rallies. You should, you should also note how he talks about Bernie at his rallies, right? So when he talks about Hillary, he talks about oh the emails. Do you know how much she did with those emails? Do you know she's going to get indicted? Do you know she's under investigation? Mm-hmm. But when he talks about Bernie, and he does talk about Bernie, you know what he says about Bernie? He says, oh Bernie Sanders, you know his rallies. I mean he's got he's got his rallies nearly as big as mine. They're not as big. He's, I think he's I think he's going down. I think they're getting smaller. That's what he says. That's his, that's the attack he's used on Bernie so far. Right. Bernie's rallies are slightly smaller than him. Well, I mean, it's easy to see how that's an easier thing to defend against than that you're going to get indicted. You, the FBI, is coming after you. Very good. Yeah, no, very good point. So far, uh, Trump Trump ain't got a lot to use against Bernie. Uh, there is an issue, though, that could affect both potential can- uh, candidates, uh, both Hillary and Bernie. Uh, as the year goes on. And I suspect a lot of people have this sort of in their mind, which is uh, some kind of a terror attack this year. And and the way that the American uh, people just, you know, frankly, foolishly, but the way they respond, uh, they get ginned up by the media and terrified and everything else that would offer seemingly a huge advantage, uh, certainly to Trump. Uh, you know, as as uh, as the nominee, uh, and many are, argue that Hillary, due to her experience yeah. in foreign policy and so forth, would have a better shot at responding to what Trump would inevitably yeah. do in that case. What, what is your thought on that? Nathan? I think that's true. I think I think if the country does enter a period of national security fear, then that, that would heavily that would improve Clinton's chances in, in versus Sanders mm-hmm. against Trump. Um, but I also don't think it would change the fact that Trump still has a massive advantage over Clinton because Trump's uh, anti-Muslim rhetoric uh, would take on a tremendous force. Um, he would hit her over Benghazi 
endlessly, right. right? So I actually think that is absolutely true that that would that would that would hurt Sanders' chances a lot if that happened. Um, but I also don't think it's necessarily true that it would make Hillary competitive. Again, it's all speculation. One of the things is that we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if there's going to be a terror attack. Mm-hmm. We don't know a lot of things, right? So we have to kind of hold all else equal. We say all else being equal, mm-hmm. Sanders has the advantage against Trump. You know, if we think there's going to be a terror attack, then maybe we should change our vote. But, um, um, you know, I think, I think, and I mean, Bloomberg might enter the race. I say this. Mm-hmm. Rubio might be the nominee. A lot of things might happen. You know, and mm-hmm. so I confine my analysis to a fairly plausible scenario operating as if we don't think a terrorist attack is, is going to happen. We don't think another Supreme Court justice is going to drop dead. We don't right. think any of these big unexpected things that could throw a spanner into the works mm-hmm. going to happen. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, and you do note that uh, ba- basically all bets are off if uh, the situation changes, if somehow, and I don't see how it's possible, but it could happen, uh, Marco Rubio could be the nominee. Anyone else uh, actually could yeah. be the Mitt Romney could be the nominee uh, if they can't come to a, yeah, right. a you know an agreement at the convention. Uh, Michael Bloomberg could get in. So that throws off all the math. But yeah. as you see it at this time, Nathan J. Robinson, as you say in your uh, the, the headline to your piece, unless Democrats run Sanders, a Trump nomination means a Trump presidency. That's it. You're saying all things being equal as they are right now, uh, Hillary Clinton, you don't see Hillary Clinton being able to beat Donald Trump. I don't, because first the polls suggest that this is going to be really difficult for her, that it's a close race. And then when you think about what's going to happen to those polls, Hillary tends to lose support. Trump tends to gain support. Well, you know, if they're roughly even right now, mm-hmm. and we think about all the attacks she's going to come under, that suggests that she's going to lose support, he's going to gain support, and that makes him edge her out and makes him the president. And so unless you think there's some other factor that I'm not considering, so, I mean, I encourage everyone to read the article. Yes. Think about what I'm saying. You know, judge the facts for yourself. Um, you know, so go to Paris Affairs, read the thing, and, and, and just picture it. And should look at the numbers, too. Look at the numbers. I don't think the numbers are too helpful, but I think you should look at them. Um, but the only but but if Hillary had numbers tend to drop, Bernie Sanders' numbers have tended to rise over time. He tends mm-hmm. to build support as people are exposed to him versus lose support. Um, so I kind of think the electability question is relatively clear for Democrats. The conclusion of your piece, uh, Nathan J. Robinson, you write, Donald Trump is one of the most formidable opponents in the history of American politics. And by the way, I agree. I think he is. And I think he's been, uh, pardon me, misunderestimated for quite a while in that regard. Uh, He is sharp, shameless and likable. If he is going to be the nominee, Democrats need to think very seriously about how to defeat him. If they don't, he will be the president of the United States, which will have a disastrous repercussions for religious and racial minorities and likely for everyone else, too. Democrats should consider carefully how a Trump-Clinton matchup would develop and how a Trump-Sanders matchup would for their sake. Hopefully they will realize that the only way to prevent a Trump presidency is the nomination of Bernie Sanders. That is Nathan J. Robinson at uh, CurrentAffairs.org. I do urge you to read that piece and to... uh, to follow his argument in detail, to, to study his argument in detail, because I think he does make a very uh, a very good one. Uh, go check that out in full. Nathan, uh, really delighted to have you here. Hope you'll come back soon on the broadcast. I think you're Thanks great. Thanks very much. Anytime. Thank you, Appreciate my friend. It.
Nathan J. Robinson, check him out at currentaffairs.org uh, or on the Twitters at Nathan J. Robinson. No relation to Donald J. Trump. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we will be back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. <laughs> Back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Well, at the Supreme Court, the death of Antonin Scalia is already uh, reverberating in a number of ways. One of them on Friday was apparent when Dow Chemical announced that it will pay $835 million to settle a longstanding class action lawsuit. And this was a case that they were fighting previously. They are saying that they're going to go ahead and settle it for $835 million because of its decreased chances of prevailing at the Supreme Court since the death of Justice Antonin Scalia, according to AP. Wow. That's yeah. three quarters of a billion with a B, a billion dollars. That's right. But had this gone forward, they would have uh, stood to lose more than a billion. It was, uh, I think the last judgment was was one billion and change plus interest for all of the years uh, since this has uh, since this case has been going on. The announcement on Friday by Dow is an early indication of how corporations are shifting their legal strategy now following the loss of the court's five to four majority, says AP. They quote uh, Robert Peck, president of the Center for Constitutional Litigation in Washington, saying that I think most corporations facing class actions regarded Justice Scalia as a friend. Oh, do you think? Yeah, gosh, you really? Think? He's been a thoroughly consistent vote on their side of the equation, says Peck. Dow uh, was found liable in 2013 by a Kansas jury of allegedly conspiring to fix prices for polyurethane chemical used uh, in everything from packaging to car interiors. The judgment dealt with alleged actions by Dow and several other companies between 2000 and 2003. So this goes way back. It has taken this long to even get this far. And Dow had petitioned the Supreme Court to reconsider judgment in this case. So that was going to move forward. Until Scalia died and Friday, the courts, uh, uh, the company said that the court's current lineup has, quote, increased the likelihood for unfavorable outcomes for business <laughs> involved in class action suits. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and they cite, uh, among other business friendly decisions, uh, Scalia's uh, majority opinion that he wrote in a 2011 decision in favor of Walmart, which threw out a sex discrimination lawsuit by some one point five million female employees. Yeah, there's definitely precedent get, for that. Yeah. I mean, remember the Exxon Valdez, the uh, uh, Exxon had been given a five, I think it was five billion dollars in yep. fines and damages that they were going to be required to pay in punitive damages to the v people who were victims of the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Exxon fought for 20 years all the way to the Supreme Court yep. and Scalia was on the majority opinion that yep. then knocked that five billion dollar judgment down to just 500 million million 
had uh, Dow uh, gone all the way, uh, as I said, they would have been they would have had to pay out more than a billion had they gone to the court, to the Supreme Court and tied at four to four, as is now sort of expected in many of these cases, because the lower court had ruled against Dow. But they thought they had a friend on the court. They thought they had that five to four majority. That five to four majority no longer exists. A four to four tie leaves the lower court ruling standing. So it would have left Dow on the hook for more than a billion dollars. And so they told shareholders, hey, man, this was, uh, you know, the, the, the best that we could have gotten, that this is good for shareholders getting out, settling here at eight hundred and thirty five million. Uh, and they're probably right. They're probably right. This probably is better for shareholders. So uh, companies like Dow are going to now be reconsidering whether they want to challenge a case all the way to the Supreme Court at this rate. Uh, And there's another change on the court that was uh, that we noticed on Monday. Clarence Thomas, for the first time in 10 years, 10 years uh, sitting on the bench since he has last asked any question at all. For the first time in a decade, he asked questions from the bench during our oral arguments on Monday at the Supreme Court hearing. His question pertained to the rights of domestic abuse offenders to have a gun in a case considering a federal law that would ban convicted abusers from owning guns. He was clearly on the side of allowing someone who has been found guilty of abusing their family of still being able to buy a gun. The 10-year anniversary of the last time the conservative justice asked a question came just last month, or just this, uh, I guess, yeah, in in February. He made a comment from the bench at one point uh, some years ago, but it wasn't a question. Uh, He has said he would prefer to end oral arguments. He doesn't even want oral arguments. Well, because he already decides what his ruling is going to be before he even shows up. Apparently, uh, his questions in this case came in a case called uh, Voisin versus U.S. According to the Supreme Court transcript of the hearing, he interjected uh, after Iana Eisenstein, uh, an attorney representing the federal government, said, well, if there are no further questions. And then he jumped in. He said one question. And then he went on to ask, by my count of the transcript, about 10 of them. Wow. Ten questions. After a 10-year absence of asking any questions, uh, many have said, of course, that uh, Thomas was, you know, little more than Scalia's partner in crime, his lackey, whatever. He didn't need to speak up because Scalia was there to do it. Well, Scalia is no longer there to do it. So Thomas is speaking up. Go figure. Change is already underway. All right. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to my guest today, Nathan J. Robinson of Current Affairs magazine. My thanks, as ever, to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it at bradblog.com or over at iTunes. Drop me email anytime. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. You can find and follow me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at the Bradblog. All right. Good luck, Super Tuesday voters. We will speak to you soon. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Uh